Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. Our guest today is a resident of the Bluegrass State and a production grandmaster. Why don't you join me in welcoming to the show, Brennan Decker. How you doing, Brennan? Good, how are you? Good. Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. If you would, go ahead and take a second and introduce yourself. Uh, so my name is Brennan Decker. I'm from Kentucky. I'm a production grandmaster. Uh, I shoot mostly state-level matches. Occasionally, I'll visit an area match or shoot nationals. Yeah, you visited uh, nationals last year. I did. It was a fairly successful year for me, I would consider it. I uh, placed ninth. Uh, so that match went a lot better than I expected it to. Yeah, I would say uh, ninth is very successful, but we'll get there. Oh, yeah. So what I like to do, Brennan, is ambush people right up front with the hardest questions and start the podcast off as difficult as possible. Then the rest of it's easy game. Easy day. All right, you ready? All right. All right, hard question number one. What's your favorite movie? Uh, I'm going to be very uh, <laughs> basic with this. The first okay. John Wick, not the rest of them. The okay. All right. Did the uh, other ones not meet the same standard as the first? Uh, that is my belief. I think they set the bar really high with the first one, and it's like they tried to exceed it and tried a little too hard with the rest of them. Have you seen four? I have. I have. Okay. So have I. Now, I my thought is, I thought two was pretty close to one. There was yeah. dialogue. There was story. Three got a little bit less of that and more just action. And then four was almost just, let's see how many people we can kill in a two-hour movie. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, like, how much action can we pack into this? Literally, yeah, we're not even going to let John Wick talk. He's just going to kill people and get thrown downstairs. Yes, exactly. And hit by it, cars, yep. <laughs> so, yeah, they went a little too far. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more story and dialogue and some other stuff, but it was still a John Wick movie, so I was yeah. okay with seeing it on a big screen. For sure, for sure. <laughs> All right, now question number two. The preface of this is, I don't. I have found doing this podcast that people don't read as much as they used to. If you read, what's your favorite book? I think my favorite book is still yet Relentless by Tim Grover. It's what Relentless? Relentless by Tim Grover. Okay, what's that about? Uh, so, Tim Grover was the coach for like. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, he's, mm. the book is, the book is, I think it's more about the mental aspects of any sort of competition than anything. Uh, I like Ben Stager's book, uh, Match Mentality, I like that as well. Uh, I'll revert back to that one pretty often. Um, it's a toss-up between Match Mentality and Relentless. I've read, uh, Tim Grover's book Winning as well. Nah, it's good, but I still like Relentless better. 
So who do you think of all athletes in history, who do you think had the greatest mental game? I don't follow sports very well. So the Well, Brandon, we we can't be friends now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very specialized when it comes to shooting is the only sport that I have shown interest in. Okay. All right, shooting. Who do you think has the greatest uh, match mentality? I have an answer. You want me to give you mine? Sure. Eric Griffel. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that at all. I, I mean, yeah. if you just base the, the streak of world titles that he has, there's no bigger stage than that. And nobody, I don't know how long it's been since he's been beat at a world, at a world match. His consistency is unlike anybody else. And that's all that mental game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'd agree with that. Uh, I really enjoy watching Max and Nils as well with, you know, the way that they present themselves during a match and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I can't argue that about Eric at all which i don't think anyone can <laughs> yeah and i i would say second to him i would put rob latham because of his the total number of uh, i counted uspsa titles at 29 so nils has 17 and he's number two yeah so i mean there are plenty of people to choose from you know you could throw ben steger in the conversation because he had what eight production titles in a row yeah. Not counting yes. the years that Eric Grafell won it. You know what I yeah. mean? So yeah. Eric even beat Ben and that was Ben that was during Ben's time. So Eric is just uh just a different dude when it comes to mentality. For sure. Now For sports sure. wise, I'm gonna say the great Michael Jordan. And while I consider Michael Jordan the GOAT. Um, because nobody, look, you have Wilt Chamberlain, you have some other great players in basketball. Absolutely phenomenal. Bill Russell won 11 titles. But we're talking Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell were seven footers. Michael Jordan was six foot six. He was a point guard or a shooting guard, whatever you want to call him. But he dominated the game. He literally dominated the game. He dunked on seven footers. He rebound, he stole, he played defense. He played the entire court from end to end line. But not only that, he made the people around him better. I would say that he didn't necessarily have always have the greatest of teams or supporting cast, but even in his first three to four years, when they were all considered uh, users of a fantastic white powder substance, um, that he still brought that team up. So mental game, Michael Jordan, hands down, bar none, because it didn't matter if he was playing international, uh, an NBA finals, or just a regular season game. That dude was there. He Every game he played the same with the same intensity. Crazy. 
So there we go. I have you on to talk and I'm doing all the talking. <laughs> hey, I'm getting education here. <laughs> this is all kinds of backwards. We got to, we got to write this ship. <laughs> all right. If you're into superheroes, I am not, but if you are, who's your favorite superhero or historical figure? I told you these were the hard questions right up front. Yeah, yeah these are definitely the hard questions here. <laughs> oh, man, you're giving me some something to chew on here. <laughs> I'm waiting for the Biden uh, administration. We're going to have to circle back to this. Yeah, we're going to have to do that now. <laughs> Well, I don't have a teleprompter, so. Uh, that, well, even with the teleprompter, they, yeah. they have no answers. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Oh, Lord. Picking historical figures could get very controversial very quickly. It, um, it could. Let's see here. Um, been watching Marvel movies all my life, so we'll, we'll go basic and say like Captain America or something like that. Yeah. Can't go wrong with Captain America. Oh, no. You can't. You can't. Just, no, it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, he has the best uniform or best costume, uniform, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, I mean, check yours out. Exactly. Yes, sir. <laughs> I like it. I even have matching in the background. Oh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Here's an easier, tough question for you. Favorite gun and caliber, and they don't, just because you're a production guy, your production gun could be your favorite gun of all time, but it doesn't have to necessarily be that caliber. It could be 22. I still enjoy shooting 1911 and 45. Okay. Favorite gun and caliber then? Yep, for sure. All right. So I assume you own one then? Uh, so I sold mine to get a Tanfolio. It was like, it was one of those uh, sacrifices to upgrading platforms. And I sold it. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Sweet. And uh, I'm working at a gun store right now, and we had a Colt come in. It's just one of the Colt 1991s. It's like 80 series. Kind of bottom-of-the-barrel Colt, but I seen it come in. I was like, yeah, I'll be snagging that. Threw it on layaway. I'm like, I'm, I'll be taking that one home eventually. There you go. I like oh, it. Yeah. I'm going to slide that one away from me. <laughs> Smart. Yeah. So, all right. You say you work at a gun store? Yes, sir. All right. So the last tough question I like to have is tailored to the guests. So I'm going to ask you, of all the guns you've seen come into that store and leave, what has been your favorite? Like the neatest looking gun. Like you're like, wow, that's a wow gun. Hmm. I need some Jeopardy music in the background. Yeah, I'm going to download sure. Jeopardy music. We had a... Uh... MP5 Navy come in. Ooh. It was full auto with a knight's armament can. Yeah, that one came in. It went straight to Gunbroker, but it was sweet. Between that one and the SDG 44. Oh, I think you have a picture nice. of that on your Instagram, don't you? I do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. I saw that. Okay. Yeah. Customer did you enjoy shooting that? It. I did. That was <laughs> that was pretty sweet. Uh, of course, I I was leaning into it because I'm like, okay, this thing's probably going to recoil 
similar to an AK, and I was expecting the fire rate to be close to it, but it was extremely manageable. Really? I would yeah. have expected more recoil as well. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Now, did you get a chance to shoot the MP5? Uh, not that one specifically. We had someone else come in. They had just the uh, the full auto receiver for an MP5, and they put on a uh, AP5. Okay. And we played around with that one a little bit, but I was shooting. How'd you like uh, that? It was pretty sweet. I like it pretty well. Uh, I shot it and an Uzi in full auto. The Uzi's fun. MP5 is still my favorite of the two. It, it's the gold standard for submachine guns. I mean, there it is. Yeah. First time I shot an MP5, we were shooting them at 100 yards, okay? So here I am standing at the 100-yard line. I'm leaning, in it, leaning into it, and I'm aiming, and I'm like, all right, this thing's going to drop. So I aim high. I'm like, -da 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 I'm like, all right. I, I go and look at my target. <laughs> oh, my group's up high. So I'm like, wait a minute, what? So I aim center. It's like, bah, 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 bah. center. I was like, who knew? I would have expected it more drop than I had, but those things are awesome. Yes, I love them. The fire rate on it is perfect to control it. Yeah. We, we had a um, an HK rep come out, and we got to shoot the HK PDW, HK5 PDW. So the personal defense weapon that sits in like a briefcase. Man, those submachine guns that HK makes are some of the funnest things ever. All right. Yeah. So those are, we got all the tough questions out of the way. So when were you first introduced to a firearm? Let's see here. Are you uh, live in, have you always lived in Kentucky? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my family's so been hunting. So, okay. I mean, like, as soon as I could remember, guns were around. But as far as me actually showing interest in them and like, hey, I want to shoot, I think that was until I was about 10 or 11. I was, didn't like guns at first because I was afraid of the noise and didn't want to deal with the recoil or anything at first. Right. Uh, I'd shoot BB guns and stuff. And then finally they got me around to shooting 22s. Then I wanted a pistol and finally started shooting a 22 pistol when I was 12 or 13. And it kind of started going downhill to this point from there. It's, it seems to be what happens. Once you get bit by that bug, it, it just never goes away. It just gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> so and what was the, no, it doesn't. It's ridiculous. Um, so what was the first gun you've owned? It was a 22 cricket. A 22 cricket. Yep. All right. So what is a 22 cricket? I'm not even familiar with that. It's one of the, uh, youth, uh, single, like single shot 22s working with the bolt, put one round in it, close the bolt. Okay. To... Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm looking at them now. Okay. And it's called, I guess it's a youth 22 gun. Yep. Accurate okay. as hell. Oh, I believe it. Man, I, I bought my, my oldest son will be 23 this year. And when he was, I think 10, nine or 10, whatever it was, uh, for Christmas, I bought him a 17 caliber rifle. Man, that thing is a tack hammer. It's just 
pow, 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 pow. It is amazing. He's actually taken quite a few um, rabbits and squirrels with that thing. It's very impressive. And I ran the ballistics out to 150 yards comparing it to the 22 rifle. And after about 75 to 100 yards, it just far exceeds what that 22 can do. It's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, 22 bolt-action rifle would, especially as a kid, man, that would be fun oh. as all get out. Oh, yeah, going out with, like, the 100-round packs or even the 500-round packs of 22. And it's like, <laughs> of course, I live out in the middle of nowhere. So I go out back, and I'm like, all right. How many rocks can I shoot today? You know, loading up little rounds of 22. Then you get bored and start taking the casings and throwing them down. Now it's only like 10 yards away. Can I hit that? That sort of thing. Yeah, of course. And then that just leads to more and more. And yeah, it's just one big snowball. Oh, yeah. And then uh, about that time that I started getting into guns, the show Top Shots was really big on, I think it was the History Channel. Started yep. watching that, and I was, became fascinated with that. So that, that, once again, has led us to this point. So it, how did you find competition then? So I was aware that there was competition for a long time. I didn't know anything about getting into them. So I'd been seeing guys like J.J. Ricaza, Shane Coley, Max Michelle on TV and everything. But uh, didn't know how to get into it until um, I acquired a 1911. Wanted to get a front sight put onto it, so I went to a local gunsmith, uh, and he was fitting the front sight onto it. And there was a CZ tax port sitting in the corner. Well, I'd never seen anything like it before. All I'm seeing is this gun with a big old magwell on it and funny-looking gun. I said, what, what is that? And it's sitting in a... Uh, I think it was one of the safari land holsters the race rigs I said, what is that what kind of holsters that he starts going on a tangent about uspsa and competitive shooting and i'm 15 at the time and uh, i said that's really cool i said that's something that happens here locally he's like yeah he said we shoot outlaw matches as well if you want to shoot one I said, yeah i'd love to shoot one well I didn't have enough 45 ammo to shoot the match with the 1911, but I had a decent amount of nine millimeter sitting back and a Glock 17 that we just weren't doing anything with. And that ended up with me going to my first outlaw match with a Glock 17. Hated Glock at the time, but didn't have anything else to shoot. Uh, after that, I was trying to shoot every weekend. And... Oh. So at 15, you got the bug. Oh, yeah. And uh, I ended up shooting Glock all the way up until I started shooting the Tanfolios. And after that, here we are. All right. So all right, I'm going to backtrack to what you just talked about in a minute. But at what age did you get the Tanfolio? I didn't get the Tanfolio until August of 21, I think, 2021. So I was 19 at the time, right? My math is horrible, apparently. So so yeah, about four years you shot the Glock? Yep. Okay. Now, what was it about, you said you didn't like Glocks at the time. So what was it about the Glock 
and this is not a bash on Glocks, but just curious because every because I'm not a fan of it, but I don't like the ergonomics. Yep, it was the the ergonomics, the way it felt in my hand. Uh, didn't like the angle. I didn't like the triggers. Um, the one I had that I shot my first match with had uh, the Trigicon HD Night Sights. So okay, I didn't I didn't have to deal with the factory Glock sights at the time. Uh. There just wasn't a lot I liked about it. I didn't like polymer frames. Uh, didn't like the plastic. Didn't like anything about it. And then after I started shooting them, I could shoot them fairly well. And they just ran. And uh, Yeah. It, so I ended up getting a Glock 17, no, the 17L. And, of course, it's got the six-inch long barrel. And <laughs> yeah. I had it in a Safari, not Safari, on the Blackhawk holsters, like the Serpas. And so you had this much barrel hanging at the bottom of the holster. But <laughs> I mean, it had, had a Zev trigger in it, Bob Vogel sights, uh, oh, okay. recoil spring, and big old Magwell. And I shot that mm. thing forever. But it fixed the issue that I had with the trigger. So I was like, hey, I like this gun. I didn't understand at the time that I could have just went and bought a Zev trigger and installed it because I couldn't mm. work on Glocks at the time. So I just ran across this pistol. I was like, I want that. Save up my money to buy it. And yeah, that it was still fun to shoot a 17L for a while. And then it became cooler later on to say, hey, I have a 17L and no one else around here has one. But it's uh, in case you need to sword fight too. Pretty much. Yeah. It's huge. Right. Any any plans on putting an optic on that thing? Uh, I ended up selling that as well to get another one of okay. these. Uh, but I ended up with a Glock 24 to replace it. Um, uh, if I shoot anything as far as limited optics goes, mm, I'd probably go all the way. I'd either get a limited master and put a dot on it or go all the way to a 2011. Uh, not sure I'll dab around that division though. We'll see what happens in the future. Might pick up an open gun again before I play in limited optics. Okay. Now how I've heard that the uh, Tanfos can be finicky at times and, and can require some maintenance to keep running. How, how do you like yours so far and how's it held up for you? So it, they've been holding up really well. As far as the reliability goes, once you figure out how it needs to be set up, like the correct spring weight, uh, another thing I've figured out is the extractor springs on them. Like uh, one of these guns, I have to put a extra power extractor spring in it to get it to run the way I want it to constantly. Um, not that anything was wrong with the stock one. I'm just really lazy when it comes to pecking the crimp for pin out and cleaning the extractor and putting it back in. Because okay. I don't like dealing with crimp for pins. Uh, one of them, that's the way it runs the best. The other one, there's something different in the tolerances. As soon as you put a extra power extractor spring in it, you start running into issues. There's too much tension on the extractor. And whenever you load it, you feel a hitch as the round is being loaded and the rim of the casing is going into the extractor. With the Patriot Defense one, it will still run, but it's a little 
for unloaded starts, it can be really fun because if you don't send it home just right, you're going to be jammed up there for a bit trying to oh, no. clear a malfunction. Okay. With the wolf, with the wolf extra power, mm. extra power extractor spring, can't load it. Wow. Yep. I'm sitting there like trying to smack it home and it just doesn't want to budge. So I have to put the stock uh, extractor spring in that one and just clean the extractor a little bit more often. Uh, I found that with the uh, Patriot Defense sledgehammers, I can get away with a 13 pound hammer spring with CCI primers if they're seated deep enough. And of course it'll run Federals all day, every day. But I prefer running a 14 or 15 and a half pound hammer spring just to ensure if I'm working at the range or something, someone wants to shoot it, slap any ammo that they've got in it and shoot it without any issues. Or if I'm having to run Gen X primers or whatever it might be, I just get a little bit better reliability out of 14 or 15 half pound hammer spring. It's okay. better just to not have to worry about it and deal with a little bit more of a double action pool. So it's kind of like, so your Tanfo is kind of like just an open gun then. You just have to figure out what springs work best and then you're good to go. Yep. And then you just leave it. And as far as cleaning it goes, I clean mine about whenever the trigger return spring breaks, which is right around 6,000 rounds. And okay. uh, occasionally I'll take the slide off of it and look at it. And if I'm like, okay, that's pretty nasty. I'll just take brown cleaner, spray it, scrub it a little bit, throw oil back on it and put it back together. Now, is your trigger spring going to break at 6,000 rounds regardless of how often you clean it? Um, it's more dependent on how often you dry fire it than anything is oh. been my experience with it. So I know guys that have never broken a trigger return spring in the tan folio. Right. So you know they don't dry fire then. Yeah, because <laughs> I've broken two. Yeah, I've broken two of them. One of them was not on my gun. I was borrowing a gun, and I text the guy. I said, um, I just broke a trigger return spring. I'm at the warm-up bay at Nationals for Carry Optics Nationals. I said, I just broke a trigger return spring. I'm going to a backup gun. He goes, how? I've never broken one. I'm like, I just did. <laughs> Of course, he's like, I've been shooting Tanfolio since, what, 2014. I've never broken a trigger return spring. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, man. I just broke one. I was like, so if you haven't spoke to anyone that has broke one before, man, I just did in your gun. Wow. Yeah. Okay. uh, I've seen where other people that are shooting Tanfolios, they have the same experience. Around 6,000 rounds of breaking trigger return springs. What I started doing is... I just replace the trigger return spring occasionally. I mean, it's eight dollars to ensure that I don't break a spring in the middle of a match. Yeah, well worth the cost. Yeah, yeah, I get for it. sure. And and you know that's the funny thing because to me, you know, the more you shoot a gun, the the more you know about it, and you know you you find out those little things. And you're like, that doesn't mean the gun's unreliable. It just, you just know that there's a service life to a certain spring or a certain part. And if you know that, if you shoot it enough to know that it's like, okay, it's, oh, it's about 5,000 rounds. Let me just go ahead and swap it out and I'll be good to go for another 5,000 rounds. So exactly. 
Yeah, not hard. The, the only thing that I've got to say has kind of annoyed me about these, and it's not necessarily the gun. It's more of the part. I like the Dawson front sights. The way the set screw for the Dawson fronts work on these guns, it's not setting in the right, correct location, and it's a little bitty uh, set screw. And I don't know if it's just the fitment and the dovetail or what, but getting them to stay on the gun can be a little bit of an issue. One of the guns, it's not a problem at all. I mean, I cram red Loctite in the dovetail, smack it in there with a hammer. Good to go after it cures. That one hasn't moved at all. The other one, I was in the practice session. I look at it, and it is like hanging off the front of the gun by about that much. Well, that's not good. So cram it full of red Loctite again, smack it back into place because it would not come off. Like I'm sitting there with a hammer trying to beat it off the gun. It's like, nah. We ain't going any further. So not coming all the way off, but doesn't want to stay on. Smack it again with a hammer and red Loctite. Practice session later, it's coming off again. Wow. Cram full of red Loctite again. Smack it back in with a hammer. Take a spring-loaded punch. Dimple it in four spots. And put a line of Loctite around that as well. Let it cure. So far, it's held on. How long that'll last? Don't know. If it comes off again, I'm just going to mill the slide off, put a SRO on it, and buy another slide. There you go. I like that. That's a good plan. It, it is. It is. Like, if the front dovetail is not going to work with me, let's make the sights useless. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's not uh, when you're shooting production and it's iron sights. You definitely you definitely need the front and the back. Yeah, yeah, it, I mean, sometimes it's a suggestion, sometimes. Right. But most of the time you need them. <laughs> yeah. You know, you might get away with it at that three, maybe even five-yard target. But beyond that, I, I think you definitely for sure want some uh, a set of sights, not just one or the other. Yeah, yeah, in most cases, <laughs> yeah. So you've been shooting the Tanfo now, what, about four years then? Uh, no, no, no. No, I've been shooting Tanfo... About a year and a half now. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, August of twenty-one. Uh, okay. I shot, uh, twenty-twenty-one, Kentucky State. I shot it with a Glock, and that was the last major match I shot with a Glock. Uh, after that, I was trying out some Tanfolios. I experimented with several different guns, but the Tanfolio is what I ended up going with. And right before Area Five, I got the Tanfolio. How do you like the weight on that thing? I like it pretty well. Um, I still occasionally I'll pick up a Glock and I'm like, just feels right in the hand to me still yet, which is really weird because I went from, <laughs> I hate the way a Glock feels in my hand to this feels like home. Uh, but in the end, after I start practicing with the Tanfolio, like if I take an off, you know, a few months off and then pick up the Tanfolio and start shooting it again, it feels fine. Uh, three cool impulse is really soft doesn't really lift very much um now what are you shooting factory ammo or hand loads hand loads so yep. your power factor i'm guessing is 130 132 ish uh or... just shot a bluegrass low cap and i chronoed at 135 
Okay. All right. Yep. So typically if I'm anywhere between 130 and 135, I'm okay with that. Like if we chrono it and it's somewhere in that range, I'm just going to set the loader and start loading ammo because filling the difference in five power factor with a gun that weighs 48 ounces. Right. You're not going to notice. Yeah, you're, you're chasing too many factors there. I'd just rather set it, forget it, and keep loading. Yeah, I feel like you could do a plus P ammo in there and feel okay with it, you know? If you have the right recoil spring, yes. Uh, I was working with a guy out on my range one time, and he wanted me to demo a drill. I said, okay. And I was like, I got to go back to my, you know, back to the house to grab some ammo, which our range is in the backyard, so that wasn't an issue. But he said, no, man, here, just grab some of my ammo. And he had the uh, Winchester M1152. I load it into my mag. I go to shoot a build drill with it, and the first round goes off, and I'm like, okay, I'm shooting some ammo now. That is for sure. I mean, that stuff chrono is at like 155 power factor plus. So it's like, boom. That's different. It'd take a, wow. a little bit of shooting to time that stuff. Yeah, that stuff is a little warm. A little warm. But I'm sure if you had a heavy recoil spring in the tanto, it wouldn't bother you too much. Right, absorb some of that recoil on the on the slide there. Absolutely. Yeah, it, uh, of course, I run an eight-pound recoil spring in both of these, so it's like um, a little light, very light whenever it comes to it. And 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 they function just fine with an eight pounder, huh? Yep. yep. Okay. The, the only time I had an issue with it was in the gun that I have to put the have to make sure it's a factory extractor spring in it because whenever I was running the extra power one, I had to run a nine pound recoil spring to make sure it had enough energy to pull the gun back into battery with the uh, extra tension on that rim of the casing. How long did it take you with these guns to figure all of that out? Like all the spring um, setup. So as far as the spring setups go, I'm still kind of figuring that out a little bit. I think the eight pound recoil springs work great. I've thought about asking questions to people that shoot tanfolios have been shooting longer than me. I thought about asking them about how they, you know, spring their guns, why they spring them that way. But I already knew someone that shot tan folios, and he just said, you know, eight pound recoil springs while I run all my guns, but he's shooting stock twos. I'm shooting stock masters. So it's like, there could be a better recoil spring combination out there, but this is just what works. So I've kind of like stuck with it. Um, as far as working on the gun in general, get out the good old YouTube, watching Memphis Mechanic tearing apart a tan folio. Uh, within a month, I was working on them decently well. Um, it constantly learning new stuff about them. Uh, right now, I think I have a pretty good handle on it, but I could be wrong, and I could be proved wrong really quickly. <laughs> so I try not to get too overconfident about it. Yeah. Okay. Now, do they have a, um, you know, like Glock has their own um, Glock Armorers class. Does Tanfo have anything like that? Not that I know of. Um, they could. Uh, it could be a thing. 
if it is, I don't know anything about it. Um, so far, the only thing I know is go to YouTube. Hey, that guy knows <laughs> how to work on it. That's how I learned to work on these. Uh, and you can find a lot of stuff on YouTube. That's how I originally learned how, how do I grip a gun? Oh, there's Shane Coley showing how he grips a Glock. I'm going to watch that. That, so, that would make sense. Yep. That's how I've learned. Or, or Bob Vogel, either yes. one. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I that's how I, guys. yeah. I mean, that's how I learned how to work on anything on my car, any type of house improvement, you know, okay, oh, yeah. let me go on YouTube and watch a few videos and then figure it all out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, there's all kinds of information on there. There is. Yeah. So that's for sure. That's one of the benefits to the internet. Yeah. Now, at what point did you decide you were going to get serious about shooting? Was it about the time you decided to buy the Tanfo or? Um, I would say it was late 2019, maybe in early 2020. Um, my uh, shooting mentor is the same guy that has been shooting Tanfolios forever. His name's Rick Van Blericum. And, uh, did you just say Rip Van Winkle? Van Blank, Blaircom. Van Blaircom. Okay. Yeah. Hey, it, the last name, a lot of people mess up the last name. I probably messed it up a lot. So it, I'm sure like, I would. Oh, yeah. It, ROs do it all the time. And, uh, if he goes into a restaurant, he'll just tell him Van, not Van Blaircom. Van. There you I'm go. I'm like, I, I get it now. But, uh, he let me borrow a Glock 35 from Zev, but it was a KC Asabio model. He let me borrow it to shoot a local match and then let me shoot a classifier match with it. And I shot limited 10 at the classifier match and made master at the classifier match. Well, that was just cool to me because in our little shooting group, I was the first one to make master and I just did it sporadically. I was like, man, that's really cool. He's like, maybe you need to be shooting more. I'm like, maybe I should. Because like, <laughs> if I can make master, can I make grandmaster? Well, now that's a question I want to know the answer to. Uh, so he ended up convincing me to start shooting major matches and start actually practicing more often. Uh, got me started on the correct drills or correct drills at the time, I would say. Now it's still yet, like, I pull those drills out go back to them right before a major match to be like, okay, let's get myself back on the gun the way I need to be. Um, but I would say that's whenever I really got serious, but cause it started off with, I want to make grandmaster. And then after you make grandmaster, it's like, okay, I really need to be shooting GM scores and major matches, uh, and need to be winning them at the least. Cause otherwise it's like, now nah, I don't feel like I'm actually a grandmaster cause I just shot you know, 80% of, you know, of another production GM. It's like, okay. But then whenever the other GM is like Niels or Jacob Hetherington, it makes you feel a little bit better. Yeah, that they shouldn't count. You should just take them off. Pretty much. There, like, there, oh there literally does. I feel like they need to do, uh, USPSA needs to kind of do, follow IDPA's um, path here in that, you know, they created a distinguished GM. I kind of yeah. feel like those guys need to be in that different category because 
you know, once you've won a national championship, you, you, you've proven you're at a different level. Yeah. I think and, some of them would definitely qualify for that. It's like, oh, yeah. uh, area five last year, I was, uh, looking at the percentage I shot of Jacob Hetherington. And I'm like, how did I only shoot 75% of him at this match? Granted, it wasn't the best match I'd shot in my life, but I didn't think it was that bad. And I get to looking at the overall scores and I'm like, how is he 1% off Max Michelle while shooting production? Yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that was just fascinating. You start breaking down those statistics like that and comparing them. And you're like, how are these guys doing this? I don't, I mean, does, is he just pointing the gun at the target? How is he? I don't get it. I, so <laughs> I talked to him a little bit. Their practice sessions are insanely hard from what I gather. It's like, you know, oh. shooting, they're probably shooting plate racks at 35 and 40 yards on a regular basis. Probably God knows what they're doing. Uh, whatever they're doing, though, apparently it works. Well, I mean, all the free unlimited ammo, you yeah. know, that that U.S. Army marksmanship unit, man, they have. I was on the Marine Corps rifle team, and even back then, that was 1990. I mean, the AMU, even back then, had the the top stuff. So they they, I don't want to say they get handed stuff, but they they literally get recruited to come and do that. And that's their job. So those guys are, anytime I see he was on AMU, I'm like, okay, well, I know what his skill level is because that was his full-time job. Yep. It's like, okay, that guy can shoot. <clears throat> yeah. Legit, that guy can shoot. Yep. So. And it's, it's no joke. And uh, I think it's interesting. Of course, like I said, I work at the gun store. We have a gun range and everything. I come back from a match like that, and they're like, did you win? I'm like, I was shooting against Jacob Hetherington from the Army Marksmanship Unit. Of course I didn't win. They're like, oh, come on, man. Why, why not? And I'm like, are you going to give me free ammo? I was like. For a year to get ready. <laughs> yeah, I was like, hmm. Let me see here. Uh, I guess you don't understand exactly how good Hetherington is. That's okay. Yeah, and let's qualify that even more. Are you going to pay me a full-time salary to go and just, and the ammo, and just let me go to the range and practice all day, every day, and then teach it too so I can reinforce what I my um, basics are and then practice some more? <laughs> yeah. Now, I've, I've heard from... Uh, like some guys up here in Fort Knox that are with the marketing team and stuff like that, that, I mean, they're still doing their normal MOS, like still doing their job, but like, you know, three or four weeks before a major match or occasionally they're like, Hey, let's go do what we need to do to be ready for this match coming up. I've heard that as well. Of course, I'm not in that community. So who knows what goes on Fort Benning for those guys, but once again, right. whatever it is, they're eating their Wheaties every morning, apparently. They, they definitely have it down to a science. So yeah, for sure. good for those guys. Um, so, yeah, you can't, I mean, even Max Michelle, that's where he came from. So you can't really compare yourself to those guys until you, I guess, you get to that point. But coming up, it's nice to see, I guess, the improvement each year getting closer and closer and closer. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, uh, the thing that I watch is like, uh, like my first major match is like, okay, what percentage did I shoot of this guy, whoever it might be? It's like, okay. So I was like my first, uh, state match. Uh, I'll use that as an example. My first major match was Mountain the Bluegrass, and I shot on a junior slot. Never shot production before. Went and shot the match, so I don't even count that as a statistic half the time. But let's say Kentucky State 2020. That was my first major match that I'd actually practiced for, understood what I was getting into. It's like, okay, so if I was 14% behind the guy who won that match, where am I at now? And each year I would look at that. But you also have to take into account that they're probably training and getting better as well. <clears throat> I mean, it, I don't think anyone, of course, I'm sure at a certain point that everyone just like plateaus. But try to take into consideration, okay, have they gotten better as well? Because sometimes like, okay, that gap is not closing. What's going on here? Uh, I think shooting against like Sal Loon is a good example of that. It's like, okay. I've shot against him in all these matches and the gap is not closing. <laughs> it's like, what is he doing different or what am I not doing well enough? Hey, occasionally see, that's a question you got to ask yourself. And that's where I wonder if taking a class gives you that breakthrough moment and allows you to move to that next step, you know? Yeah. And I think I took uh, Ben Stager's, uh, skills and drills class in okay. September of 2020. And that class, there was things I took away from it that was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And now I'll be shooting matches and I'll draw back on that information. Uh, the big thing that I took away from it was picking spots on targets that kind of like reinforced it whenever I took his class shooting more target focused with irons opposed to every target focusing on my iron sights and staying drawn into the sights. Whenever I actually pick a spot on the target to drive the gun to, I find myself shooting better points. Mm. Uh, and actually putting the gun in the center of the target instead of pressing the trigger whenever the gun starts crossing brown. So it's like instead of jerking the gun over to the target, pressing two as fast as I can at it, I'm actually going, yep, that's where it needs to be, press two. I mean, it. I don't think it's uh, so much slower that it costs you anything because, uh, like, Saturday would be a good example with the uh, low-cap match. There were stages where you can watch on the videos that I still need to post. I'm lazy. Uh <laughs> where like I swing the gun around the corner and there's a target right there at like five yards. And there's a slight pause on me engaging it because whenever I jerk the gun over to it, I'm in the C zone. Well, mm. there's a target right in front of me at three or four yards. Why not just drag the gun a little bit, just a little bit further and shoot two alpha on it, pick my points where they're really easy to get, get up out of that position. So I, that was something I really took away from the class. Um, paying attention to the ten, yeah, that's a, a tongue twister there. Paying more attention to the tension in my firing hand, and actually relaxing it a bit. Uh, there was a stage at nationals uh, last year 
where I think it was stage 18. It was at the very top in zone three on the end. Yep. Um, there was 11 pieces of steel that you could take from one position. Yes. And it's like, I have 11 rounds in the gun. If I want to shoot this stage well, I have to shoot those 11 pieces of steel with 11 rounds in the gun. It's like, if I can do that, I can pull ahead on this stage a little bit. Granted, I'm not going to win the stage. I, I pretty much accept that whenever I'm shooting the Nationals. It's like, I'm not trying to win every stage. I'm just trying to shoot. How well can I shoot without hanging myself on each stage? Yeah. Um, so it's like, I get into that position. I'm paying attention to, am I pressing the trigger straight back? You don't, ideally, you don't want to be thinking about this on the clock, but it was one of those times where I kind of just take a breath and I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Make sure each trigger press is going straight back. Make sure I'm not cranking the gun with my firing hand. Clean that, load the gun back, and then it's back to autopilot. Um, there's a few moments in the match where I'll have to do that, uh, which is not ideal, but occasionally it's needed. So do you have a, um, since you listened to Steve's podcast, is there like a, a focus phrase that you use? At one point there was. Um, okay. I actually had this discussion uh, the other day with my mentor. And it's like when you get into the mental aspect of shooting, you can, I don't know if you've read any of Brian Enos's book, Beyond the Fundamentals. No. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure you have to have a, uh, you know, like IQ above 150 to sit there and read the book and just go page <laughs> for page without going, what is going on here? Because like drinking from a fire hose is what it feels like to me. Because uh, I'm sitting there trying to digest it. I'm like, do I have a room temperature IQ or what's going on here? Um, but I'm sitting there reading Brian Enos's book and there was something that came up in it that made sense. It's like, okay, let's go back and think about stages. I shot exceptionally well. What was part of my process before the make ready that could have resulted in that performance? And I'm sitting there thinking, on it and I'm like, I didn't have a focus phrase. It's like that. There's nothing specific that I focused on that allowed me to shoot like that. As a matter of fact, it was like, my mind was blank whenever I shot the stage and before I shot the stage, like, okay, but that doesn't work every time. Um, and in Brian's book, he talks about how the difference between concentration and just being in a state of awareness. And it's like, if you are really concentrated on doing one thing, well, then that's one thing is what you're going to be focused on doing. So if something else goes wrong, you kind of like have to sub sidetrack and then get back to it where it's like if you're in a state of awareness you it allows for you to adapt to what happens along the way mm. i mean it i haven't got that part figured out by any means i'm pretty sure i would shoot a lot better if i did have that figured out uh that's kind of like what i'm trying to do now is figure out okay experiment in that matches be like okay what did i do here that was different um, and I'll look at stages that I shoot in matches and it's like, okay, I won this stage and I won this stage by a huge margin, 
why it's like what was different where was my mind because if i can do that once surely i should be able to repeat it and if i can repeat it over and over again well then that gets me a little bit closer to those guys that are at the top um that's the part that's confusing for me at the moment yeah still trying to figure that out for sure uh i'll use an example from the slow cap match that uh bluegrass just put on the first stage i won the first stage had overall went on it and then i got beat on every stage after that going into the ninth stage i got beat on it too and i'm like I had a moment where I kind of like retracted and pulled myself away. I'm like, what is going on here? I'm like, I am not shooting like myself. What's going on? I'm sitting there thinking. I'm like, well, the problem is, is I am thinking way too much about it and maybe getting drawn into the stages too much. And who knows? But uh, Tyler took a moment to. Where were we? <laughs> Okay, so you were saying that um, you won stage one, you'd gotten beaten on the stages up until stage nine, you pulled yourself back, and then you went to speak to your coach or somebody? Uh, no, not really. I kind of like just uh, pulled away from the squad. After stage nine, I got beaten on stage nine like pretty badly as well. And I was like, all right, what, what's going on here? And I'm sitting there thinking on it, and I'm like, maybe I just need to relax and just shoot. Like, and just stop worrying so much about it and just believe that I can shoot the stages and be done with it. Well, after that, I kind of just relaxed, not really drawing my focus in on anything specifically, relaxed and shot the last two stages and won both of them and went from losing the match to winning. I'm like, okay, why couldn't I have done that on the stages in between? So I'm sitting there looking at my overall finish and I'm like, so where would I have been if I had just, you know, uprooted my head from my ass and shot the rest of the stages? Like, it's it's very uh, confusing when you sit back and think on it. Uh, it seems like it would be easier. So that what I was saying when I was muted for the rest of oh, the no, audience. I, could hear you. I know you could, but I I oh. was I was muted for the recording. <laughs> so. What I was saying was that that line between winning and losing those stages is very thin. Um, but it seems at times easier to fall off of that line than it is to cross back over to the winning side. You were able to do it. Were you able to figure out what occurred? I, I think that I was just like, I think I was getting too focused in a way, if that makes any sense at all. Like focusing on one thing for that stage, once again, goes back into, did I have a focus phrase? No, not really, but I was trying to get super focused to shoot the stages and over-confirming everything instead of just shooting. And, of course, it could also be as simple as I just shot those stages better than my competitors. It could be that simple, or it could actually be that I had a mental blockage on them. You know, it's hard to tell. And it's something that you kind of got to experiment around with to see. Uh, I do know I went from shooting god-awful points <laughs> in horrible times to shooting, dropping two Charlies 
across the field course. I'm like, what happened there? I mean, it. That's something I think on pretty often. It's like, all right, is there a, is this a mental thing? Is it, am I overthinking that? And that's just really nothing specific. That I haven't got enough mileage to figure that part out yet. I do feel like sometimes there's um. And Steve has mentioned this too, you know, once he's like, you know, a lot of shooters, once they make the mistake and the pressure's off and it's like, oh, it's, then they start shooting better. And I wonder if that's, if you were just, like you were saying, so focused in that you were trying so hard that once you let that go and you were just shooting, you, you crossed back over. Yeah. And that's very possible. And there's been times where that's made a lot of sense where I shot a stage horribly and then the stages after that shoot great uh there's one match where i actually passed up four targets racked up them four ftsas and eight mics and then shot every stage really well after that maybe i do need to take a anderson class and some (laughs) mental management to help me figure that part out yeah and he and he talks about that um just on his podcast too, but there's one part where I don't, the part where I would, I don't want to say disagree with him. Cause I mean, he knows way more about this stuff than I do, but the part where I look at differently than him is he says, you know, people in that scenario I just described, like they're expecting to make a mistake. And then when they do, they shoot fine because the mistake's over. I look at it as what I have found is, if I go in there afraid to make a mistake and I, you know, then I do. And then because I'm so concerned about making the mistake that I make the mistake. It's kind of like staring at that no shoot or like, don't hit the no shoot. And then you hit the no shoot because that's what you're telling yourself. You know what I mean? So I look at it a little differently than he does. I feel like if I, if I shoot scared that I'm going to make the mistake, if I just go in there and shoot normal, I, I don't necessarily make the mistakes and I shoot better. It's uh, the same concept of saying, you know, don't think of the Eiffel Tower. Well, first thing that comes to your mind is the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower. Uh, yeah. So I've heard that one before as well. Like looking at a stage, it's got a bunch of no shoots on it. I've sat there and was like, well, I don't want to hit the no shoots. And someone says, what no shoots? Of course, I'm sitting there for a moment and not thinking that they're being sarcastic at all and go those right there. Well, I kind of get their point now. It's like, don't think of the no shoots. Think of the Brown, shoot the Brown. Well, that makes more sense, I guess, in a way. Uh, And that's kind of how I look at penalty targets. Now it's like, okay, shoot the Brown. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.